Hello and welcome to What's Next with Joel Krogman. That's me. I'm Joel Krogman. This is episode nine, and today on the show is my conversation with Sarah Richardson. Sarah Richardson is the co-founder and CEO of Microbiome, which is a biotech company that specializes in domesticating bacteria. Sarah is a computational and molecular biologist, and she earned a Bachelor's of Science in Biology at the University of Maryland College Park and a PhD in human genetics and molecular biology from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Sarah is like way, way smart, way beyond my abilities to understand. But she also is really down to earth and and what she's doing is really cool, not just for the academic science nerds out there, but for the lay person like myself. I got to know Sarah last year while working on a project, documentary project featuring her as an innovator uh, using science and data to fight climate change and the climate emergency that, that our planet is facing. While spending that time with her, I just got to know her as somebody who's incredibly talented and incredibly smart, but also very driven to have an impact. And it was really great to get the chance to talk to her for the podcast. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sarah Richardson. Hey, Sarah. Oh, hi. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. Thanks for agreeing to do this. Oh, no. No, thank you for um, arranging everything with Conwall. Oh, she, she was great. She helped out a lot. She is a massive get for me because I'm I just drown in the email and as soon as I let her as I delegated it to her, which is first time in my life having somebody else look through my email, yeah, yeah things started getting better. That's great. I remember when we were working with you last year, she was just starting, I think. Yes. Yep, that was <laughs> August, right? Yep, uh, yep. Yep. She was brand new. Uh, she's taken over a lot of stuff. She jumps on grenades for me. I'm like, Oh, I can do that for you. She's like, No. Sarah's not doing that. <laughs> Why would great. you volunteer for that? She's perfect. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Was that a hard transition, delegating that level of detail in your life or that level of personal detail? Some of it was easy because it's stuff I know I'm bad at and wasn't paying enough attention to. Things like some of the budgets for the office, things like um, you know making sure there's snacks around and, and <laughs> decorations. Mm. Um, but some of it, yeah, uh, it's not that I don't trust her. It's just I'm not used to apportioning my time where someone else is going to go through my inbox. And so when we sat down to delegate, you know, we started going through my inbox so we could start talking about what has to happen with each kind of email. And she's like, why are you subscribed to all these things? Maybe you shouldn't be getting these emails and you have control over that. So yeah, it's a process and yeah. she's gentle but firm about yeah. it. Uh, yeah, she's, she's really great. She's very professional. That's cool. I think for me, I, I would, um, uh, the way that I typically go about solving, solving like my time management and, and the ways in which I manage all these different things that I'm trying to do would be, I'd be like, I don't want anybody to know all the, (laughs) all the corners that I cut and the shortcuts I take. And how much I don't know what I'm doing. I still have my private space. So yeah. there's that. Like all the stuff I have to do at home. Like we just bought a house and um, oh, cool. I have to take the house we're living in, which is a duplex, and turn it into rental properties. Oh, nice. But the new house needs like asbestos and HVAC and wiring and everything. Oh, so, geez. so my husband's handling that, but I have to handle the duplex 
And um, my mother died, and I have to handle her house in Baltimore. Oh, no. I'm so sorry to hear <laughs> and that. I, I could definitely use an executive assistant at home. <laughs> right. Especially with the 19-month-old, the who is his own just special sphere of every yes. day. What the hell? Take Taking over the expectation that they're the center of the universe. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and very good at enforcing that too. He's yeah, like, you're going to pay attention right now, or stuff is bad. Stuff is about to happen. <laughs> I remember that. Our youngest is five, and he's still kind of that way. Yeah, but hopefully, a little easier to entertain himself right now, right? Yes. Yeah. No. Definitely. And we, we almost lean into that a little too much. Like, there's there's certain things that work in a second, like a like a Nintendo game or whatever. <laughs> no, we we have these unboxing videos. Where it's just yes. this dude playing with different brands of fire truck, ambulance, police, um, helicopter, airplane, whatever. He's got Duplo, he's got Revel, he's got Rudder, and there's no dialogue or anything. It's just, oh no, somebody hit a pedestrian, and then the ambulance comes, and yeah. and then he starts recreating those with his toys, but he doesn't have an ambulance, so that's a problem. He just goes, uh oh, uh oh, so oh I ordered an ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, that's good that he's still like in the world of imaginative play and not just completely zoning out on a screen yet. No, no, he he interacts with the TV for that. He's like tractor, digger. He loves the diggers, so he yeah. tells us what's happening on the screen. He did just start cussing, where um, I couldn't figure out what word it was, but uh, he's trying to say bridge for one of his duplo box, and he says bitch, <laughs> and then it's frog. I figured it out. It's a frog. He goes fuck. Uh, that's perfect. <laughs> Our youngest right now thinks that the F word is bitter because he's not quite clear on his like letters and all that stuff yet. All right. So he's just constantly <laughs> saying bitter all the time, <laughs> dropping F-bombs. <laughs> he feels so grown up. <laughs> We're like, no problem. No one else No one else has any idea what, what you think you're saying. Nice hack. That's a good hack. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you, Sarah, for joining me for, for this conversation. I've been looking forward to it for a while. No worries. I'm flattered. Okay. So just to provide a little context for the listener, you are the founder and CEO of Microbiar. And Microbiar is a biotech startup that is domesticating bacteria. Yes. And I have two co-founders. Okay, great. So you're a, a, you are a co-founder and CEO of Microbiar. Okay, great. It's safe to say, assume that the average listener has a higher intelligence than I do, <laughs> but still, I think that you know what you do is has a certain degree of complexity and nuance to it, and deals in a realm that people just don't generally have a whole lot of of knowledge uh, about. So I'm just curious if you if you could give us if we could start with you just giving us sort of like a high level. What does that actually mean? A biotech startup that is domesticating bacteria. Like, what's the what's the bigger vision that you're pursuing there? Sure. One of the reasons I like the analogy domestication, which is not really analogy, it's actually what we're doing, but it mirrors a process that people have been learning about since they were children. All of the animals we teach our children, what sounds they make, all the books and things, it's cows and pigs and ducks and dogs and cats. These are all domesticated animals. Mm. And we understand, all people understand that domesticated animals are descended from wild animals. And the process is sort of intuitive. We understand uh, selection, where wolves were sort of over time selected for friendliness, for ability to work with people, for their dietary preferences, until we end up with a golden retriever. So people also understand that domesticates are safer 
than the wild animals. So this is a mind space people really truly understand, which is why I like to use it to segue into microbiology. So they understand that process. That is the same thing we're doing with bacteria. The domestication of our plant life, of our livestock, this is the best work, the biggest work of bioengineering that has happened in human history. Domestication means you say to an organism, I will take care of you. I will change the way my society works. I will change the way my life works. I will change my structures, how I build things, how I design my cities to accommodate you. And in return, you will shed your natural defenses. You don't need to color your coats anymore for camouflage. You don't need to grow horns anymore for defense. You don't have to make certain toxins to defend yourself anymore. Mm -hmm. So you're going to become more and more dependent on me and you're going to spend all of that energy you would have spent defending yourself on specializing in that trait I picked you for. You're going to make more meat. You're going to make more milk. You're going to make more nutty flesh in your fruit. Mm -hmm. And I promise to protect you. That is the deal for domestication. Mm -hmm. And people get that. Right, With right. bacteria, we're doing the same thing. We say, which bacteria are doing something that could be super useful? They're doing it for themselves. They have a lot of other stuff going on that distracts them from doing too much of it, from specializing in it. Because in the wild, you have to be really good at a bunch of stuff. And we make a deal with them. We say, hey, come into the laboratory and we're going to protect you. We're going to make it so you don't have to compete with other bacteria for food. We're going to make it so you're not really predated on by viruses. And you are going to spend that extra energy with our guidance, specializing in that function that we liked you for. And over time and with genetic modifications that we do on purpose, they'll get better and better at it. And then they'll be eligible to go into industry so that they can be grown at massive volumes in fermenters to do that function. It could be making a chemical. It could be fixing nitrogen in the soil for plants. It could be detoxifying uh, contaminated soil. Mm -hmm. It could be helping with mining efforts. There's bacteria doing all of those things right now. And what Microbiome does is intensify and make more rapid the process of them getting really good. You think that works as an explanation? Yeah, I do. I think that's awesome. That kind of leads me into my next my next question, which is: This is uh, you're kind of at the forefront of this, right? There's not uh, necessarily a whole lot of other organizations or entities going quite to the depth or to the degree that you are in terms of looking broadly at bacteria and what bacteria can do for us as humans. There aren't too many. A lot of focus has been on a couple bacteria. So there's a lot of industry that involves bacteria. You could call it domestication, how it's worked. For instance, cheese making, they use bacteria. Mm, yeah. They do selection. You know, Over time, it's this is tastier than that one, so let's keep using that culture. What they're not doing is direct genetic modification. They don't add or remove DNA in a deliberate manner. They're doing what we would call artificial selection. There are massive chemical fermentations, uh, say Archer Daniels Midland or Aginomoto, they make amino acids using mm -hmm. a bacteria called Carinobacterium. A lot of our antibiotics and a lot of medicines, even uh, immunosuppressants for organ transplant patients are made in bacteria. 
but those are not necessarily directly genetically edited. So a lot of companies are working with bacteria, care about bacteria, but yeah, they haven't brought together these tools or this focus on bringing new bacteria in Mm -hmm. because all the ones that you could sort of artificially select to be profitable, they've come in. Right. The next step requires a little more. And yeah, microbiome, we're not quite alone, but we think we are pretty far ahead. Okay. And the idea then is to replace some of these current systems that we use to get chemicals and things like that, right? That that rely on petroleum and oil that ultimately kind of further down the chain have a more harmful effect on the environment. That's the idea. With chemicals, definitely trying to interrupt the petrochemical chain. We used to make most of our chemicals from biomass, but the availability of subsidized petroleum really changed the economics and encouraged us to switch. Mm -hmm. So there's places we can switch back. The rub here is no one pays a green premium. Right. People are not going to pay more to save the planet, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So as we build up a biomanufacturing infrastructure that needs to be subsidized the way petroleum was subsidized to motivate that. And in the meantime, we have to pick chemicals bacteria can make that are cheaper than oil that provide that competitive advantage. I don't love that, but that is a fact of the world. So yes, petroleum replacement to reduce our dependence on oil. Mm -hmm. There's also ways we can reduce carbon emissions with bacteria. If you think about it, a lot of our anthrop- anthropogenic, our man-made <laughs> carbon emissions hey, are actually you, bacteria you. made. <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> a lot of them are actually bacteria made. So mm. we grow many, many, many cows and the methane coming from the cows is not coming from the cows, it's coming from the bacteria in their guts. So our livestock the reason we have so many is because we're doing it, but the real effect is caused by bacteria. Same with wastewater processing, uh, same with agricultural remnants when they harvest, but they leave pieces of the plants on the field and they rot. Whenever something's rotting, bacteria are eating it. We're right. just providing more opportunities for bacteria to produce methane and carbon dioxide. Right. So something we can do is to gather that biomass, to have an incentive to gather that biomass, to do something else with it, to get the bacteria to eat it, to produce medicine, to produce chemicals, to produce the other things that we might need. We can redirect carbon emissions that way. And we can do bioremediation with them as well. So that's more of an environmental and less of a climate mm-hmm. uh, impact. But bacteria will break down things in oil spills. They will do things like um, pull metal. Uh, they can, uh, they, they're in great use in mining because bacteria are very good about changing the oxidation states of metal so they can make mining easier. Wow. Bacteria run this planet. There are so many really important processes that keep us alive that they're involved in. Most of the oxygen on the planet comes from bacteria in the ocean. That should be a motivation to help people keep the oceans healthy. Right. Because (laughs) people like to breathe. The trees are important, but they're not doing it all alone. So it's very important that we, one, become more aware of the importance of microbes and two, that companies continue to broaden their efforts and bringing more of them on board in this effort to remediate climate change and have a better impact on our environment. 
One of the things I'd really like to get into, I'm really curious about with your story, is you're taking a position sort of with your work and what you're doing as, as a disrupting or kind of going against the grain of what is conventional <laughs> conventional uh, ways of doing things. And history is made by people who think that way. There was no conventional path to getting to what you're doing now. And you had to take a position of really believing that what was inside of you, this vision of what you thought could be possible and what you thought was right and should be done and investigated was worth pursuing and worth you know risking some things for. So I'm really curious about where that comes from. I think a lot of my obstreperousness can go back to a thing my father said to me constantly while I was growing up. And he said, why do you always have to learn the hard way? Mm. <laughs> that was his phrase for, for me. Why do you always have to learn the hard way? And I think that ends up with me just needing it proved. I just needed to see it for myself. Not everything. There are things where, yes, I can accept other people's answer for it. But mm -hmm. when people don't have an answer or their set their explanation ends up being, well, that's how it's always been. That's just how we do it. If that is as deep as we can get to why something is happening, that bothers me. Hmm. That means there's a broken link somewhere where we haven't, we've lost some thread of information about why things are the way they are. And therefore there might be a chance that they shouldn't be this way or there is a chance to improve it because we've forgotten something about the optimum or what's possible. So it's worth checking. Yeah. But I grew up in West Baltimore. Mm -hmm. So I went to a school in Baltimore, University of Maryland College Park. So I didn't stray very far. Okay. About an hour down 95 is where I, I went to school. I majored in cell biology and molecular genetics. So that was, I think, a surprise to some people because they thought I was going to major in computer science. Well, did, what, where did your interest in science come from in general? Oh, probably Star Trek science fiction. Not going <laughs> to okay. lie. Very basic. Yeah, yeah. I remember watching the original series. You know, when you're a kid, it doesn't look cheesy at all. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. I remember asking my father if they can explain how a dilithium you know, warp engine works. Why can't we just build one? Why don't we have it now? And he tells me a science fiction. They're making it up. Yeah. <laughs> they're, what? They're making up science. <laughs> but that didn't turn me off from it. I just really loved the, especially in Star Trek, the hopefulness of it, mm. that they were actually not going out for war. Mm. They were going out to find new things and to be at the frontier, a pioneer and bring it back and try to be peaceful everywhere. I mean, now it does sound a little cheesy, campy. Um, I mean, Star Trek was really a political yeah. show. It was not yeah. really a science or adventure show, but it was a political show where the centerpieces and motivations were about diplomacy and science discovery. Right. Right. So I really like that. And I, I love the idea of meeting aliens because there are so many ways for them to be different. And yeah, no, I'm never going to meet an alien, but you couldn't tell me that then. Yeah. And I didn't want to be an astronaut, though. The real heroes on Star Trek, the heroes. It was not Captain Kirk. It was not Captain Picard, who was much calmer. It was not Cisco or Janeway. And I'm dating myself. <laughs> those are my Star Treks. I remember all those characters. It was their scientists. Mm. It was their doctors. It was uh, McCoy 
figuring out the cure at the last minute. It was Jordy LaForge fixing the engines. It was Scotty getting it done, you know, under budget in a much shorter time than he promised. Yes. They are the ones who pulled the bacon out of the fire every single time. They had to figure out something on the fly. They had to make something work. Taping stuff together, yeah. (laughs) Yes. They were my heroes. Mm. I didn't really want to be the captain. I, that that seemed like a lot of work, a lot of responsibility, but also nowhere near as much glamour or acclaim as being the one who figured out the alien virus, huh. who fixed the engine with just that much time to spare. So the captain got them into trouble yeah. and the scientists and engineers got them out. Right. That was what was cool to me as well. You said that just accepting like because that, that I say that's the answer uh, and that that wasn't satisfactory for you. It's never satisfactory. Did you have some experiences as a kid where their authority figures or whatever just said you have to listen to what I'm saying and it didn't make sense to you? Or like where, where did that come from for you? Is it just what you were born with or did you have some experiences that really solidified that viewpoint? It wasn't my parents, to be clear. My, my father, he was a stay-at-home dad for a lot of uh, the time. Okay. And that was just his joy and his, uh, to indulge, uh, my siblings and I Yeah, with as many books as we could take, mm. uh, discussions. So he would never in the end say, Oh, that's just how it is. Or he would say, I don't know. Yeah. And I respect that. I still respect it. And everybody just saying, I don't know. I try to say it to people. I can't know everything. Yeah. I believe in ecosystems. We all have to know different things in order to make this work. So my father would just say, I don't know. But yeah, you go to school and teachers may just not have time for you. They might not know, but they don't want to dilute their authority mm. by admitting that they can't be an authority on everything. So I I don't remember doing this, but I'm told, my parents told me in grade school, uh, they'd get called in because I was demanding more or a one, <laughs> one egregious thing that I, I started kindergarten at five, but my father had already taught me to read. I'd been reading for a couple of years. Oh, wow. And he didn't realize that was going to be a problem or that that was unusual. So my classmates in kindergarten would always ask me to read things for them. Mm-hmm. And I would read them anything, <laughs> anything. They'd point at it and I would read it. This was a problem for the teacher because she would read us a book. And you know how it is. You read to children. You don't necessarily read everything, yeah. but you show them the pictures. Yeah. She would turn the book around to show the pictures. And I would say, that's not what that said. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that I still have trouble with not being precise. <laughs> like, let's be <laughs> accurate. Let's be both precise and accurate. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, that's not a smooth way to interact with people. (laughs) So that started young too. Yeah. I have that experience now with my, my youngest can't read, but my oldest can. We read books together and I'll often skip words that I don't really want in my youngest vocabulary. And then my oldest will quickly point out the words that I'm not saying. It's a joy to be able to read, but their solution for that was to skip me up a couple grades. So I ended up in the second grade. Oh, wow. Like you went went to second grade during your kindergarten year? Yeah. Yeah. I was five in the second grade. Yeah. That's crazy. And you, so did you maintain that two year? Well, I switched schools after that year. Okay. And uh, the new school, they were going to start me in the third grade. And my father said, no, Yeah, uh, she's too small, right. physically small. Right. That, yeah, she can probably keep up with the academics, but she socially, that's not where she is. So I did the second grade at the okay. new school. So I was six in the second grade and then just stacked from there. Okay. So, yeah, I, I graduated high school at like 15. Wow. And I remember I was in college and I was the only one in my friend group who was not legal to drink. 
<laughs> but that didn't stop you, I'm sure. <laughs> I, it did for a while. I was kind of lawful good. I, oh, okay, that's <laughs> I, was good. La- I was lawful good for a while. I was a good kid. I I respected the, well, I don't know if I was a good kid, but I was not a curfew breaker. Yeah. I didn't drive for until grad school. I didn't have a license. Oh, until grad school. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But you you respected the authorities. For some things, I think I understood there's public good, there's public Mm. safety, there's, you know, personal safety. Those were not rules I tended to question. It seemed obvious why you don't run red lights. Or, you know, (laughs) once it's explained, like, yeah, I don't need to test that one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one makes sense. (laughs) So, no, I I was pretty chill as a kid. And no, I wasn't drinking, especially I wanted to go to graduate school. Mm-hmm. I And I didn't want to get in trouble for underage drinking. It didn't seem like a good bet. I'm not going to say I didn't have some, but I was not out there with a fake ID. I was so boring. It I wasn't was so your boring. main scene. Okay. No, no. The sense I'm getting is you had a, a pretty good sense of who you were and the self-confidence that comes along with that. I don't want to give the impression that I was all self-confident. <laughs> No. So so what was, what was your sense of yourself, you know, as you grew up? Because you definitely have that. I get that impression from you now that you have that there's like a, a belief in who you are and what you're doing and that you get energy from and helps you as you do what you have to do. I believe in this mission. Yes. The reason I'm doing it, because starting a company isn't necessarily easy or fun or it wasn't for me. Yeah, you're the captain. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I have a great crew just really passionate, competent people that are taking a chance on this Mm. because they also believe in the vision. Mm -hmm. So yes, I have had to believe and adopt a position of confidence. It's forced me to be confident about the things that I believe. But getting to that spot, you know, especially going through graduate school, graduate school can be a really drudging experience of realizing how little you know about everything Mm. and being in an environment where people have a great need to be an authority on everything. Right. So there's the way you're supposed to be, which is a humble supplicant to the pursuit of knowledge Mm. and the way you have to be as a more senior academic, which is professing And not every professor will admit when they don't know something or will expand their horizons. Sometimes they can't. You know, the structure of academia is very weird. And nothing is as guaranteed to instill in you a sense of imposter syndrome than academia. Yeah. It is just, it's really tough. So I didn't get a good dose of that in undergrad. In undergrad, you tend to be... Yeah, that's the stereotype is you don't know what you don't know. And you're like, I can do anything. Uh, You enter graduate school and they'll slap that out of you real quick. You're surrounded by very smart people of varying degrees of self-confidence themselves, whether or not they are expressing that self-confidence in a healthy way or lack of self-confidence. It varies, but you're surrounded by very smart, very motivated people. And it's tough. It can be tough. So, yeah, beginning to think that I had a different idea than my advisor's about what was important to do, that process of going from, so I'd started working for one of my advisors when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. I got lucky, um, found the one professor in town who was willing to take on high school students. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> Very, very lucky there. But that meant that I had started working with him when I was like 13, 14. And I wasn't, when I, when I was in graduate school now, I had a long history of thinking of him as an inviolate 
sense of authority, right? Mm -hmm. I needed him. Mm -hmm. He was so smart. He was brilliant. He ran this whole lab and he was, he was all of those things. But now I started to disagree with him. Mm. So who's wrong here? Right. Him or me? And this is supposed to be an, a pro part of the process of be, uh, being an apprentice is being able to stand up and have your own domain to start to own yeah. and profess in. Right. But it's not necessarily something professors are good at is mm -hmm. letting people split off gracefully. It's not something they necessarily expect. They have to have that own sense of confidence, right? Which will butt up against yours. They're like, no, 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 I'm right. I know what to do. And then I'm going, wait a minute, I've really focused on this one little thing. And now I have a different idea that will also sap your confidence. Yeah. This person is so successful. They know so much. They've been doing it so much longer than you. So I had to sit on that for a year or two going, am I crazy? You were talking about, you know, disrupting or doing something very different. It's, I found it terrifying because yeah. you'll think you're crazy and people will tell you that you're crazy. They will not hesitate <laughs> to tell you that you're wrong. And the only thing that got me through it is me going, okay, prove it to me or let me prove it. Hmm. It's not enough to say I'm wrong because no one's done it. It's not enough to say I'm wrong because you've never seen anyone do it or you don't think it can be done. That's not enough. We're supposed to be engineers. We're supposed to be scientists. We can set up tests. We can seek a minimum viable product. We can test this. So telling me no one's ever done it. That's not enough. Yeah. Telling me it can't be done. And you can't then provide a reason, a falsifiable reason or an evidence trail. That's what kept me going despite people going, this is crazy, or you can't do it, or no one can do it. Yeah. Well, that's so important that you had that because I, you know, just knowing myself and knowing lots of other people, you could just have easily as, have just accepted it. I guess I'm focused on the wrong thing here and I'm going to adjust and do what aligns more with what those who have gone before me think. I always had to learn the hard way. Yeah. I'm not always right. You know, I've busted out in some area and then gotten proven wrong. So I try to incorporate that as well, that it's not about me being right all the time. It is about falsifying something. I think the Silicon Valley phrase is fail early, fail often. Yeah, yeah. It's a good philosophy. I don't love to hand Silicon Valley a lot, but that one's good in engineering mm -hmm. in particular. Mm -hmm. So I go looking, I ask people to help me prove to myself that I am wasting my time. Yeah that I ask them, has this been done before? Have you seen someone fail at it already? So I don't necessarily waste resources proving to myself that it can't be done. Yeah. When you approach it that way, your ego is out of the equation because you're not, you're not like, I need this to be proved right so that I can feel like I was right and be validated. I, I actually want to prove that this is wrong so that I can move on to the next thing. Everyone on the planet has limited resources and limited time. And we deserve to be spending our time and resources as best we can, as best as we can afford on the things that move our lives on the tracks that we want them to be on. And so I want to have an impact on climate. I believe that that's really, this is the only thing I can do with the way I've trained up. I can't say that climate was always my goal when I trained up this way, mm -hmm. but the climate emergency requires every hand on deck. We all have to be paying attention. We all have to be voting. We all have to be spending. We all have to be allocating resources to it in some way. We all have to pitch in. And I felt that the most important way I can pitch in, 
the most impactful way is to push on these bacteria. I really believe that there's everything else has to be done too. We need to electrify, we need to, you know, get better at recycling, wastewater, all kinds of things need to be done. This is what I can do. And therefore it's even more important that I don't get an ego about doing it my way, about not cooperating or about doing something just because I think it's right, even if no one else has done it. Yeah, It's, it's not going to help us get to our goals if I get that involved. I'm not going to say I don't have ego about it. I love being right. I try to culture here. Um, I try to have the culture be admitting when we're wrong. And I try to set that example for all my people. I will tell them, oh, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. You were right. Or let's, you know, let's test this. And as soon as we know which one is wrong or right, you know, we will admit that and move on. Yeah. Yeah. When you were in your graduate program, working towards your PhD, you had a couple experiences where you kind of had to say, like, I disagree with you. And it sort of caused you to have to break paths and go a different direction, right? And find something new. But like, that's a big deal to decide to leave your PhD program and do something else. I wish it wasn't such a big deal, you know? Yeah. Um, In academia, the number of people who can become a professor shrinks every year. Hmm. So everyone entering, especially in STEM, but I think maybe especially in the English and just, it is, it is so bone crushingly, heart destroyingly hard to become a professor mm-hmm. that there should be more normalization for them of either not finishing a PhD and going on to be worthy somewhere else or finishing the PhD and then not pursuing a professorship. And uh, that's just, in my experience, not the reality. Yeah, uh, It depends on your program. Some programs are very much like, hey, we are putting out PhDs and master's students and they're going to go into industry. Or, uh, But some of the very fancy programs and very fancy places that think very highly of themselves, that's not necessarily the expectation. And it's very, very hard on people. Yeah, But yeah, I was... Um, I was in disagreement enough. I was that here's my version of the story. I'm sure everyone <laughs> who touched it might have a different uh, uh-huh, way of the uh-huh. story, but I was just, I, um, I got in a lot of feedback too, that what I was doing, they're like, Oh, this isn't science. And so I think grad school was a little harder for me because I wasn't really doing basic research. Mm-hmm. I was building tools and they were tools that didn't exist anywhere else. They were tools for other people to do design and to pursue basic research, but I wasn't, I didn't have a hypothesis. I was leveraging other people's basic research to make tools. And I'm okay with that. I like being a tool builder. I think of myself as a bioengineer. I have a very different definition of what bioengineering is than an electrical engineer or a physicist might have about what Mm -hmm. bioengineering is. (laughs) But (sighs) I didn't, I thought there were other places to use the tool than where my lab was using it. And I couldn't do that in that lab because appropriately they were focused on where they were going. Yeah. That's fine. That means it's time to go. But, you know, I didn't have that many social graces or politics or a bigger picture, right? That's uh, the other thing I don't like about academia or life. You figure out how you should have done it after you've gone through it and burned a bridge or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you learn the hard way. I learned the hard way. <laughs> so I kind of walked into my advisor's office and basically was like, I quit and you can keep the PhD. And he was like, no, no, no. Okay. It's time for you to go. Here's your PhD. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's how that happened. Yeah. And I still tell grad students today that, you know, you can't necessarily rely on your advisor to be a mentor. 
a lot of them try and can be, but for them, there is a, there's a dissonance there where they mm. need you to do stuff and they want you to be independent, but you know, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. So he let me go with the PhD, which I was prepared to walk away without. <laughs> and I said, he said, you should be a professor. And I said, never, hmm. will never happen. Hmm. We'll never do it. You can't make me. <laughs> and I was invited to do a postdoctoral fellowship at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory mm-hmm. in California. So that's what I did. I moved out to California. I brought my dog and my guitars, uh, two of my guitars, and I left my husband back in Baltimore. <laughs> I didn't know you played guitar. That's cool. I the the I brought two. I brought the one my father left me, um, and I brought a band guitar. So that's a funny story because my husband's always like, "Oh, if you're going to get another guitar, two guitars must leave." Okay, you mm. can't fill the house with guitars. <laughs> two guitars. But must I leave. <laughs> entered a book collecting contest, and the prize was a thousand bucks. And I told him, "If I win, I'm buying a band guitar. It's a six string banjo. So it's tuned like a guitar. You play it like a guitar. You don't have to learn how to." do a banjo fingering, but it looks like a banjo. It sounds like a banjo. Hmm. Neil Young has one. So, you know, I was going into stores like, hey, can I buy a banjo? They're like, a six-string guitar is not a banjo. I was like, Neil Young has one. Like, what other credentials do we need? (laughs) So I did win the contest. What was, wait, what was the contest? I did get the banjo. It was a book collecting contest. A book collecting, I don't even know what that is. (laughs) So uh, this particular contest was collegiate book collecting contest. So they let all the grad students, all the college students submit a collection of books that they had and did not need to be like rare books in beautiful condition. It's about the theme. So you had to have, I think, 30 books or more in a theme, write an essay explaining the theme, then have a list of 10 books that you wanted to add to the theme. And there was some other list. I can't, it was like three parts. Okay. So um, I won first place in the graduate division. I think nice. I was the only person whose book collection was not what they were studying. Okay. And uh, my collection was uh, oral histories of wars of the 20th century of American involvement. So oral histories of World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq. Huh. And all oral histories, only oral histories. So compilations of people telling their story in their own words. Are you uh, especially interested in U.S. history? I really, I do like history. Uh, but the oral histories were particularly compelling to me because it is like sitting at someone's knee and learning from their experience. But also both my grandfathers fought in World War II. Okay. Or... Both of them were in the Pacific theater, but one's a black man and one was a white man. They had very different experiences and neither of them came home and talked about them. Hmm. So my mother's father had came home with pictures and things, would not talk, especially to her as a girl child about it. And my father's father came home, pictures, different experience, but also would not talk to his son about it and then expected his son to go to Vietnam. Oh, wow. And that was a very contentious uh, experience for my father and his father. Yeah. But that means that, you know, I got curious sure. World War II and I, I used to build the model airplanes of the the fighter jets for World War II. Yeah. I, or they weren't jets yet. That's right. Because I didn't care about the jets. Jets are an amazing engineering, but I was very much captivated by the spit leather and rope, yeah. just putting the bombers, like the consolidated B-24 Liberator. That was my jam. Okay. <laughs> Ploiesta, That There's a book called Ploiesta. It's amazing. Hmm. But I couldn't get from my parents or from their parents 
any description of what went on. So those oral mm. histories, it's almost like having a grandfather who's willing to tell you how awful the war was. Yeah, yeah. My grandfather is from Holland. He's Dutch. He passed away now, but and my grandmother as well. Um, but they lived through lived through occupation, and my grandfather was captured by the Germans and was he was in the underground army in Holland and was being taken back to to wow. work camps and escaped off the train and and hid and lived in farmers fields for months and months and months making his way back to Holland and it's it's such so crazy that that history is not that far away and it is and they don't owe it to tell us that right the trauma that everything it were it's really valuable when they're willing to share that with us and yeah. so I'm grateful for everyone and those histories because i would not i think as an adult especially as a kid you know you might be too ignorant but i would never presume that it's anyone's job to educate us about the horrors of war or their experiences so we have to be extra grateful when people are willing to commit those to the narrative so that we can try to learn from it yeah and then especially now that we know so much more about mental health and it's just so so much more of a yeah integrated conversation yeah yeah right right yeah, my grandfather would I would ask him questions, and when we were kids, and he would just say, "I, I can't, t- I can't answer that question for you. It'll yep. give you nightmares, you know, that kind of yeah. that kind of stuff." It's they're trying to protect us too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's the uh, emotional labor. I've become a lot more aware of that. Society is advancing; they're getting mm-hmm. better about integrating the experiences of many people. But one of the things that can happen is then we ask people to perform for us, for our own education. We're like, hey, can you tell us about times you've been discriminated against? Can you tell us about times where, you know, your identity was? And so we can be educated. It's like, no, you're asking them to do emotional labor for something that doesn't need to be re-explained. And when you ask them, well, what can we do to make your life better or to stop discrimination. He goes, well, we already told you that. We told you that back in the movie Philadelphia, right? This has been going on for yonks. And so that uh, continuing to ask the people who are being oppressed about uh, to do emotional labor, that's something I've become a lot more aware of. Hmm. Uh, yeah. I won't do those kinds of discussions. Yeah. Yeah. Anymore. I won't sit on those kinds of panels. Um, it's just, it, it's a lot of, it's, it, it's not war, but you do have to relive some things or it's just not, it's not okay to ask people to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. You're still kind of finding your path um, about what you want to do, but you still, but there's many more roadblocks ahead for you. There's always this opportunity to quit, right? Yeah. The question of when does something become too hard? No one can answer that question for you. For you, the answer was not yet. Well. Or was it? I might flip that. Um, so as a as a postdoctoral fellow, you still have an advisor. You're still a part of a lab, and that lab has a greater mission. And when I went, I told them I don't want to work on X and Y. Mm-hmm. I, I don't believe in that. I believe we need to expand, and I won't come if that's what you're expecting. So let's be clear. Let's not waste each other's time. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, 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 no. You, you can come. But when I got there, the, that isn't the trajectory it was taking. And what was happening was it wasn't, it wasn't, I was getting ill doing work I hated. Mm-hmm. That's what was happening. I just, and so I quit the first postdoc at least. It, it was a high pressure environment too. So there was a lot of, 
I think some unreasonable expectations and some of it was not very healthy for me mm. or other people. Yeah. So for me, I've <laughs> quitting spree. I just quit. I walked into his office and said, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> We had that conversation. He did not take it as well as my graduate school professor, anywhere near <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, and then his boss called me and said, oh, come to my lab. Okay. And I said, to be clear, I will not be working on X and Y. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. So I went to that lab. I quit that one two years later. So what I had wanted to do was be a government scientist. I wanted to be an engineer and build tools, but I guess I'm not a mindless tool builder, or I really needed the tools to be working towards something. I wanted to be part of an ecosystem where people were using the tools to fight climate change, to improve medicine, to remediate the environment. And what I saw them using the tools for, or the tools they were asking me to make, Mm -hmm. were not on that path. Mm -hmm. I couldn't see them being on that path. I saw no evidence that it was going to help. It was, to use the other term of the phrase, it was academic it was not going to have an impact in our lifetime is my opinion. So yeah, I quit both postdocs because I just, and that was when I was, I was like, I guess I can't do science. (laughs) I guess I'm not going to have a path affecting technology here because I tried academia. It's not going to work. Can't be a professor. I tried the government and they are set this particular laboratory was set in a different path and I could not get the leverage or the experience to shift it. Yeah. So I was like, I guess it's over. I tried. I'm going to have to find something else to do with my time. Cybersecurity. <laughs> you kind of hit the end of your rope or what you knew knew what to do in order to explore what was next. Yeah, I, th- I thought I knew what was next. And I kept thinking that we were all on the same page, but we just weren't. Hmm. So there was a lot of currents above me, above my pay grade. There were just even at my pay grade or just with my advisors, just I couldn't get them on board with it. They were still, as my first advisor was, going in different directions, needed to go in different directions, had a lot of momentum and didn't have a lot of patience for me trying to branch out. And that I found a little upsetting in, in academia. It's not just them. Let me be clear. It's It wasn't like these guys are the worst. It's more that... It's difficult to test things that are risky. Academics are supposed to be rewarded for taking on risk, but structurally, in order to survive, you have to minimize your risk. Academia does not reward people for failing. Mm. There's no publication for, oh, yeah, we tried this and it didn't work. So they tend to be very risk averse. And, you know, venture capitalists also tend to be risk averse. So in terms of innovating, it gets to be really hard to find the right mix of timing and people who are willing to say, okay, we might fail, but we got to try anyway. Yeah. And I felt, sci- I naively was like, no, no, that's not how scientists work. They're like, let's falsify this. Let's do it. And absolutely, the ones who are surviving, the ones who are you know, getting a lot of grant, they are minimizing some of this risk. And you're, what you wanted to do was inherently risky because it was new and, and expensive? or I didn't think it was, it's not very expensive. Like the lab we've set up here is basically the same lab other people have. Well, we did put a lot more in robots. <laughs> we put yeah, a lot more you have some cool robots in, around there. in Cody's and in, in people who write software and do data science and machine learning. So in terms of a molecular biology lab, it's got it's weighted weirdly towards automation and uh, software. 
But uh, otherwise, no, it's more about discarding some biases that are built in. Mm. And that's where, you know, I might be labeled disruptive is I look at the field and where most of the academic effort is put in and where a lot of the industrial effort is put in. And I say there's a lot of bias built in to guide them to make the decision to focus there. And what if we discard some of that bias? What is possible? Yeah. And I was finding just headwinds where I was that the bias was basically taken as just obvious. It was that it's not a bias. It's truth. That was their foundation that they stood on and they were not questioning the foundation. And I, once I saw it, once I saw that there was no answer there for why that was the foundation or how it got there and people couldn't tell me how they picked it. That's when I knew somebody had to at least crack, try. We had to look. And in all the years since I left my postdoc, I have not, despite looking, been able to be dissuaded. There's been no evidence that what we're trying can't technically work. We're still facing risk. We're, you know, doing our business development. We're finding partners to commercialize what we're doing. There's always risk with the company. But I my number one engine, the thing driving me was that, hey, the tech makes sense. There's always that risk when you're commercializing technology that you miss the market or, you you know, the number that there's lots of risk. Yeah. But the technology, the technology is not crazy. So that's why that sort of gave you the confidence to continue moving forward. Yes. And when we recruited our first people, you know, I got co-founders. I recruited co-founders, the first people who go, okay, you're not totally crazy, but you need our help. (laughs) That's the the first rule of starting a company is don't do it. The second (laughs) rule of starting a company is co-found, find co-founders as soon as possible. And they need to have different skills than you. Mm, mm -hmm. So don't co-found with your grad school classmates and you're all the same majors and you all have to know. Right, right. Bring them into the company, but you need to elevate people who have disparate skill sets. So my co-founders, the the first one in, she's chemistry. And the second one in, he's a lawyer. And lots of practical experience in places I don't have. So lots of coverage. And then when we raised our first money, we immediately recruited just so lucky the best crew. We were seven people until February of 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a uh, we have a molecular biologist who that's my core training, but she's better than me. Okay, <laughs> uh, she's actually really good at the bench, and I never was because I'm a theorist. And we got an amazing laboratory manager, a research associate, and a bioinformaticist who, you know, better at really the statistics than I was. My job at the company was to be like the second best is as much as possible. The first best as little as possible. And now with uh, 27 people, my job is to be the fourth best to ask about almost anything. And they remind me of that. (laughs) They remind me of that, uh, which is good. How do you keep yourself healthy? in your mind <laughs> how do you keep yourself straight how do you because you're doing a lot you have you're you're breaking new ground with the company you're a mom you have you know there's like all these things that are coming at the same time for me i feel just with the with what i do is like it's it's hard to keep a mental health practice so for you how do you keep yourself focused how do you keep yourself on track happy <laughs> what is what do you do well one of the things i do it's a real privilege to love what you work or mm. 
love your work or to be happy at work. Mm -hmm. That's a privilege. I have to, I recognize that. Mm -hmm. And so people tend to assume that when you say have an advanced degree or when you're paid really well, that you might, you must love what you work because you could go do something else. Yeah. And uh, that's not necessarily true. Right. I don't necessarily love my job. I love the people I work with. I love the mission, but the job's hard. And I just want to acknowledge that because I don't want that cognitive dissonance of why don't you love your job mm. when it's hard and unpleasant and difficult. I need to have to get the gas to do the stuff anyway, but I don't want to set up the cognitive pain of you're supposed to love this. This is what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. So the reason I'm doing it is what motivates me, not necessarily what I'm doing. So you expect, you expect it to be painful. I do. I expect there to be unpleasant conversations. I expect there to be a lot of no's. Yeah, yeah. You go raise money and not everyone throws it at you and they all have different reasons, some of which they'll share and some of which you're like, ah, that doesn't make sense. And that feels bad, but you just get the door closed in your face nine 199 times and you have to keep doing it for that 1000th time and you have to do it harder because now you've had money, you have people, you know, you're doing it for not just the planet, but for all of them yes. more proximally. There's a little bit more at stake. Yeah. Yep. And so you have to have the, the gas, you have to have the reserves to keep doing it. And so you don't want to lie to yourself about when it's unpleasant or when it's good. You just have to respect yourself enough to go, you know what, this is unpleasant. You have to change this poopy diaper. There's poop literally everywhere. But the reason we're doing that is because the baby needs to stay healthy. Yeah. And so you don't, oh, I love changing diapers or why don't I love changing diapers? Why don't I love taking care of this screaming dirty thing right now? It's this is necessary and there will be, there will be points that are more fun. And we're getting there. And I think that's largely my philosophy. <laughs> hmm. uh, the The end goal is important. There's a lot of great stuff along the way. And also remembering to highlight those for my people. Yeah, yeah. For my husband, for uh, my staff, when they get wins, to make them their wins. Yeah, and yeah. to make sure that I recognize their wins. And that my satisfaction is that I gave them the resources and the space to realize those wins. Hmm. And then get back to the, <laughs> not exactly the misery, but the difficulty of making sure they continue to have the space and the resources to do that. Yeah. Because it's an ecosystem. All of us have got to pull together. And I'm really honored that, uh, I, I'm honored that my husband joined me on this journey. He's watching a lot of this crazy stuff go down. Mm -hmm. And um, he has been so helpful. Could not mm -hmm. do it without his support and his patience. Mm. And uh, my staff just all bought in and they're all in with their whole hearts and just giving a hundred percent, making sure they don't burn themselves out. That's actually a fun part of my job is mm. sending people on vacation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Well, that's cool. I think there's a, there's a humility that I can, that I sense in, in how you talk about your company and, and the people that you work with. And I think that really is reflected in the way that you lead and how you approach it, which I think is really cool. I still learn that the hard way. <laughs> you still mess up and then you have to apologize and admit you were wrong. But I so. even just that, having that approach of this is a lesson I've learned rather than a reflection on who I am as a person. Like I'm somebody who has failed. I'm not a failure. Yeah, that's something I'm hoping I can in instill in my kid is yeah. the difference between how you're feeling and what reality is. Yeah. So you can feel stupid. But 
are you stupid? Yeah. And being able to question that and have that reflex when you go ahead and have your feeling, but then let's question reality as well. Let's just check, which is, I think, part of the, you know, I'm doing something crazy or something other people said couldn't be done. So the question is, am I crazy? Let's check. Yeah. <laughs> like I might feel crazy or it's crazy making to have a bunch of people around questioning or telling you it's wrong, but let's do the reality check. Yeah. And I think that is one of the comforting things about life is we can make sure we leave ourselves the opportunity to grow and not be the person you were in high school. Right. <laughs> I would never go back to high school. <laughs> so yeah, being able to change. And I appreciate that in the people around me too. Yeah. I think the microbiome culture, definitely. I, w- I love using the word culture. It's a bacteria culture, people <laughs> culture. Nice, nice one. Um, but that the culture is we are all giving ourselves space to make mistakes and grow because we have a big challenge ahead of us and we're not currently equal to it, but we can get there. Yeah. What do you think is achievable in your lifetime? Or what do you think is going to be when you look back? What do you think is the thing that is the marker of success for you when you when you think about your work? For us, for the technology, my hope is that it is adopted broadly, that people start addressing their symbiosis with bacteria on this planet in a much more direct fashion. Right now, we are symbiotic with them. They make vitamins for us. They help us digest our food. They make medicines for us and our livestock. And we kind of take that for granted. A lot of us don't think about it. We're not aware of it. And therefore, we don't know where it can be pushed, where it can be leveraged. And we might not have the patience for it either. Yeah, yeah. So one branch of it is, it sounds so dorky to say, awareness. Yeah. I'm hoping that, you know, within my lifetime, everybody is as aware of bacteria as they are of dogs and cows and cherry trees. <laughs> that they are just, there's something we teach our, bac- our children a lot more frequently. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, this is Streptococcus. Yeah, this one's Escherichia. You know, there's no reason they can't get nicknames or be known or recognized for the efforts they make on this planet. Right. And then on a more practical commercial level that they have come into the stable fully mm-hmm. and that their companies have shifted their practices, new companies have spun up and that we have a subsidized biomanufacturing infrastructure the same way we have a subsidized petroleum infrastructure, that it's viewed as a matter of national security, that it's viewed as a matter of climate security that is viewed as just the new technology we need to really be able to have everyone live happier, cleaner, healthier lives is becoming one with the planet. That sounds so dorky, (laughs) (laughs) but that we are biological organisms. We live on a big biological incubator. The earth is a Petri dish and we're not alone. We can't act like we're alone and succeed. So I really hope that that is a consequence of our success, that we shift the view the entire world holds of our position in the tree of life. In terms of you and your personal role in that, what is important for you and the role you play in it? The number one thing I think I am able to contribute, I have this whole amazing team behind me. We have a business development team who are enlightening and uh, drawing out opportunities for us to have a good impact on potential partners, that we can improve their margins, that we can open up new markets for them, that we can you know, do things for them that they were only doing with petroleum before. 
we have, I have an amazing team of, we call them Cody's, you know, the people doing our machine learning, our automation, our software engineering. So we can turn these over even more quickly. I've got an amazing team of Benchies who are actually working with the chemicals, working with the bacteria. I love all these nicknames. I know. I, I think they like them too. The Busies, <laughs> the Benchies, and the Cody's. That makes me a bossy. I try not nice. to be too bossy. Nice. <laughs> but my role here is to give them the resources to actually affect the technical and commercial change. And so I think one of the best things I can do is to talk to you. Mm talk to your audience, talk to all the audiences I can get to inspire that sense of wonder and a sense of hope that there's an alternative. Mm -hmm. And to be frank with them, it takes investment and it takes partnership and it takes patience. We need companies to come to us and say, okay, let's work together on another way. We need the regulators to come to us or to go to the regulators and say, yes, there is another way. And how do we make it safe? And how do we protect every component of it. And we need to go to the government and say, how do we foresee this going? What are we going to need in terms of grants and academic work and just the direction, the visioning? And I need to go to the lay people, to the taxpayers and say, here's what you need to support the entire infrastructure doing. Here's questions to be asking your rep- your elected representative about you know, their commitment to biomanufacturing, their commitment to climate change. It's not just bacteria. I need to also use any audience I can get to say, look, we're having a climate emergency. You should be doing these things. You should be asking yourself about the the patronage you give to companies, about your personal habits. Although let's be clear, a lot of this stuff is bigger than us. We just have to vote with our dollars and our vote. Mm -hmm. So I think my role is to run my mouth. I run my mouth. I bring the resources back to the the people who are actually doing the work. And I plant that seed and it might be a really slowly germinating seed, but it better today than yesterday, or sorry, better today than tomorrow, mm-hmm. that we can have this change. That's awesome. Well, you definitely are, you have tons of energy and your commitment to the mission really comes through. And I love that. I have one more question. It's a totally selfish question. I have not been able to find a satisfactory answer to this anywhere. So I'm so I'm looking I'm looking everywhere and you seem to be a good person to ask. MSG. Yeah. The flavor enhancer, MSG. I know that that comes from like a that's like a bacteria byproduct, right? Or it's made out made in some part from that. Corinobacterium glutamicum is the classic bacteria that's used to produce the glutamate that is the part of monosodium glutamate. So it just means one sodium ion attached to a glutamate. Okay. So you, you being the bacteria expert, I have an allergic reaction to MSG that, but it's only in when it's in the form of barbecue chips that are flavored with MSG or like that pub mix, you know, and it's, it gives me like, I go, I basically go blind in my left eye. Then I get the worst headache. Like I feel like I'm going to die. And then I throw, I just throw up like crazy. And (laughs) the whole thing, the whole thing lasts about four hours and then it's over and I'm I'm back to normal. But I, it doesn't happen when I have MSG in other forms. Like if it's in a sauce or whatever, it's only that kind of. I am not a doctor. That was actually <laughs> right. my email address in graduate school was not a doctor at jhmi.edu. That's funny. And uh, But I would have to, as a uh, part of the scientific process, I would have to look at the other ingredients in those two triggers that you have. Right. I, 
firmly believe you're having a nasty reaction to something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's really unlikely to be the MSG, hmm. especially if you can tolerate it in other forms. There's right. something else going on there. It's like some kind of combination or something? Yeah. I doubt it's even a combination. I think there's probably something else in there that you're having a nasty reaction to. Um but I'm not a doctor, but uh, <laughs> glutamate is one of the 20 amino acids that, you know, yeah. everybody learns in high school biology and the monosodium glutamate is safe. It's got such a bad rap. Yeah, it does have a bad rap, um, but it does. Yeah, it's just got a bad rap. But I would go look <laughs> at the ingredients, uh-huh. everything else in those in those things that you just listed and see if there's maybe something else. That, that's how I would do it. And if you right, right. narrow it down and it's just like the concentration of mm, MSG, mm. I I'd, I'd, I'd doubt that, but I'll bet there's something else in there. And okay. man, I wish you luck because that, that sounds like a really unpleasant reaction. Yeah. I mean, I just I just avoid it now at, like at, at, as much as I can, but I know that I've eaten it in other things and it doesn't have yeah, that it's reaction. it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah, People yeah. go to restaurants and they wonder why everything's so tasty. It's yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's very ubiquitous. It's butter and yeah. MSG. <laughs> yeah. Those are secrets. And yeah. in, in home cooking, like that, people be surprised how much salt, butter, and MSG like really spice up, kick it up a notch. Right, to right. A chef. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah, for doing this and for, the, for sharing your wisdom and your experience with me and um it was really great to see you again it's nice to see you again stay in touch and uh, thank you for the opportunity to go plant that seed of hope in other minds yeah um is there anywhere uh, besides your website anything that anywhere people can go to um learn more about what you're up to so yeah or there's the a bunch of videos on our youtube page microbiers okay. youtube page yeah. Uh, we have a Twitter account if Twitter's still around. <laughs> uh, I have a Twitter account. I've been very bad about updating it. So um, my my company's trying to make sure I update that more. But um, our, our Twitter account's active. And I think those are the best places to go. Okay, cool. All right. Thank All you. Right. Bye. You can learn more about Sarah and the work that Microbuyer is doing by visiting their website, microbuyer.com. And you can also visit Microbuyer's YouTube channel and see a bunch of videos that feature Sarah giving various talks and lectures on the work of Microbuyer and the role that bacteria can play in, in being part of the solution to the climate crisis that our planet is experiencing. Both of those links can be found on the episode description. I'm just really grateful that people like Sarah and her team are working on things like this that break new ground into what the future might look like. So it's encouraging and it is hopeful, like she said. So yeah, I'm grateful for Sarah and the work that she's doing. So that was episode nine. Again, it's crazy to think about it. It feels like I've been doing this for so long. I can't believe that it's only nine. And yet in some ways I'm like nine. Wow, I hit, I've gotten to nine episodes. And I'm just really, really grateful. So thanks. Thanks to all of you for listening. And I hope you have a great week. 